This is Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. I'm Father Yuri Claudio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my friend and teacher, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Welcome, Father Jeffrey. Welcome to our listeners to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom, with today's topic being exceptional cases. Exceptional cases. So these would be, well, first of all, let me start by saying we've actually finished the actual service of baptism. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's sort of, that was a little surprising to me. Um, (laughs) We actually got through the entire, uh, all the preliminary services that might happen before a baptism service takes place, things like the naming of uh, the child or the churching of the mother, you know, things like that. But then we've actually gone through the whole baptism service. So, you know, in theory, we could end the season right here. But, you know, we thought we would keep going with uh, exceptional cases. Um, and what I mean by exceptional cases is that there are times when baptisms take place or receiving somebody into the church takes place where they don't fall neatly into just having never been to church before, having never been baptized, and then coming to church and then being baptized. There are those who perhaps were part of a Christian community where they were baptized, and then they come to the Orthodox Church. How does that work? How do you, how do you receive somebody who has perhaps been baptized, in, even in the name of the Trinity? How, how do you do that? Um, there's also the situations of, let's say, you know, sometimes this happens where an infant is is on their deathbed. How, how do you handle what it means to receive that person into the church through baptism in that moment? And this goes to our question, Father Jeffrey, which we've alluded to a couple of times is, what is most essential about this service? If you had to cut it down to, uh, to just uh, a couple of lines, what do you do? And, and I know that that sort of makes you bristle, Father Jeffrey, because you don't mm-hmm. want people to think about the liturgy or the baptism as some sort of mere transactional experience. Um, but then there's also uh, the issues of what about people who come from other religions like Judaism or Islam or maybe some kind of pagan religion, or perhaps they're coming from uh, different kinds of Orthodox traditions, right? We have the Oriental Orthodox uh, who come from various parts of the world who are Orthodox, but we're not in communion with them. So what does it mean when they get received into the church or or when a Catholic person becomes Orthodox? So there are so many people, Father Jeffrey, that fall through the cracks of this nice, neat system. So mm-hmm. today we're and just going to go ahead. I was just going to say, and even that nice, neat system that you described, we already saw was relatively complicated by the fact that it was designed originally for adults and then only later in you know Christian history was it primarily directed at um, infants right because although infants would have been implied in the receiving of whole households in the early church and it wasn't for centuries that they became the, the prime target of the church's um, baptismal services and so forth so there's even an awkwardness within the nice tidy system, you know, that we have, but you're precisely right. I mean, all of these complicated um, situations, pastoral situations really call for, um, you know, kind of loving pastoral response, but also one that is fully in keeping with the discipline and, and canons and norms, you know, of the church. Um, 
to throw just another example out there, what about those who were baptized and chrismated as Orthodox, but then go off into one or another of these things, including into other religions, and then return? You know, uh, that, that was another situation the church had to deal with. And if you actually go back and look at the early councils, including the ecumenical councils and the canons there, this was one of the main issues that, that came up. You know, a lot of canons do deal with how you uh, pastorally respond to these kinds of situations, you know, and is it different if somebody goes off into another religion or just into some Christian heresy or even into just um, some sort of schism from, you know, the, the main church and, you know, sets up another altar and so forth. So these are all very complicated situations. And of course, they've only got more complicated through, through time because, you know, those canons and those councils weren't dealing with for example, the big split between East and West, and then the breakdown of the Western church into the thousands of denominations that we see today, which is just, you know, utterly, utterly com complicated, you know, the whole situation. So I think your average Orthodox presbyter pastoring a, a small parish, you know, is inevitably going to confront a great deal of these throughout his uh, tenure and ministry. And, and it really does, uh, you know, make life uh, kind of confusing and complicated at the parish level. And often, you know, we need to you know, go to the bishop or go to, you know, our church, wider church practice and, and follow that through. But to have some understanding of how the church has dealt with this through history is helpful here. So perhaps we should just dive into, so uh, for those wondering at home, Priests are given a book called The Great Book of Needs, where there are a whole bunch of services for various occasions. And in in the version that I have, in volume one, there's a whole bunch of services listed for particular different kinds of people that might need baptism or be coming for baptism. And then how do you do it? And what kind of service do you do? So I thought, Father Jeffrey, we'd just start at the first one or, and work our way through and see how they compare to the full baptismal service and to see where they differ and why. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the first one in my book is entitled thusly. A prayer for holy baptism, that is, how briefly to baptize an infant when there is fear of death. And then it says this, this brief form is used only when there is fear that the one being baptized is in danger of imminent death. And um, unsurprisingly, it's quite a short service, Father Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, this is uh, really an example of <laughs> trying to distill the baptismal service into kind of the most important ritual actions. It seems to me at least. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of uh, preliminaries. There are no litanies. There's, uh, you know, just kind of opening prayers and, uh, you know, a kind of single prayer before there's a, a baptism. Uh, and, and obviously, um, the the form that the baptism takes will probably in these circumstances be somewhat limited, right? So, you know, we, we spoke earlier in the series about um, the way that there are kind of ideals when it comes to, to that form, uh, you know, right back to the first century and the teaching of the 12 apostles, the, the Didiahi, um, that famous text uh, talks about, you know, the ideal is kind of cold living water, you know, the uh, some sort of stream that flows and that sort of thing. A font is kind of 
already a kind of compromise of sorts and then a warm water in a font even more still and then you know the ideal is you know, some kind of uh, immersion and with pouring uh you know only secondarily some kind of just pouring without the immersion and here very likely i mean i've i've had to baptize children in incubators you know who are very close to to death and you know if you can get your hand in there with a bit of the blessed water you know to make the sign of the cross on the forehead you know you're kind of at the peak of of intervention you know in in this sort of situation so i mean i i'm pretty sure knowing god for who he is this is all right you know and in in no way shape or form should somebody doubt the baptism has really taken place if you know they should go on to survive which you know in many cases um, they might even if they were in, in in danger of imminent death the, the the prayers and the grace of baptism surely play a role in the healing process in any case but it's not a matter of oh well i i didn't get the full thing you know the service was only a few minutes long it was um a kind of smearing with water on my on my forehead rather than than a full immersion i, I think there's there's been a real kind of um i don't know an, an obsession with um with form um with kind of making the ideal that is described in the in the church and practiced in the church into some kind of idol of sorts that has made some people really question you know whether they have been properly baptized in these circumstances but what is clear from the book of needs from church practice from these prayers and these these things these pastoral applications that go back to the early church is that you know it's not a a second best somehow it's just the best that could be done in these circumstances right and so the same holy spirit is at work the same death and resurrection in christ takes place uh the same grafting into the covenant family of god is accomplished and it's not that we need in any way to kind of put these on a kind of second tier although you know they, they are as you've described them exceptional circumstances extraordinary situations that we have to deal with but it shouldn't lead to that second thought which is oh maybe i'm i'm not properly baptized somehow and and certainly there's no indication here that um that that's the case that something is missing you know from from the equation mm -hmm. as it were well i mean i think that leads us into the next kind of service here father jeffrey which is the completion by the presbyter of the office of holy baptism if it were if it was performed by a layman mm -hmm. so here you know the acknowledgement is that I, this kind of reminds me of the story of is it saint athanasius when he was uh, a young boy would do this play acting and be baptizing his friends and one mm. bishop saw him one day and then took him aside and says you need to stop doing that because these are real baptisms <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's this acknowledgement that you know there are situations in which somebody may have been baptized by a layperson in the church and it's it, it's interesting that when this person comes to the church they are not rebaptized right it, it's fascinating right uh, so i mean here's an even more extraordinary circumstance i mean uh, so presumably an infant or even an, an adult who has decided to you know turn towards christ at the moment of death but there's no presbyter or bishop there you know to celebrate the sacrament it means that um you know a lay person this is maybe 
you know, somewhat exceptional amongst all of the, the holy mysteries uh, in the Orthodox Church, a lay person can perform the sacrament of baptism. Uh, and the only conditions here are that um, the, the words are understood you know, and I, I, so I suppose I doubt slightly the story about children playing at this, you know, because right, probably right. there you're, you're missing, you know, that kind of understanding and intentionality, you know, of, of the words. I mean, if a couple, if a little boy and a little girl were, were you know, playing and, and sort of said the marriage ceremony, it doesn't make them, you know, married somehow, mm-hmm. um, you know, but and so the, the conditions are that they, they kind of mean it and understand what the words mean and that they use water, you know, natural water. It's not some sort of, you know, other thing. Uh, and it's not like a kind of pretense or play acting, right? If that's the case, then a baptism has taken place. Um, but of course, if that person should live a bit longer or a while longer and a presbyter is able to attend, what hasn't taken place, unlike in that previous case where you had, say, a you know, presbyter visiting a hospital, a child is in an incubator where you can do a baptism and a chrismation. You can use the holy oil as well. Um, here, a, a layman is not, you know, capacitated to to do the chrismation part. So what we have here in terms of a completion of a, a lay baptism is essentially picking up the baptism service um, at the point of where the baptism has taken place. There's a litany here to start things off and a prayer, but then we pick up basically at that Psalm um, 31 where we sing, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven. And we talked about that in the series. And then you continue and you do the rest of the whole, you know, service of, of, of chrismation, including ablution and tonsure and, and, and so forth. So essentially, you know, it, it assumes that everything up to that point in the holy mysteries of illumination have taken place, has already taken place. Right. And, um, and, and I think it's quite, um, maybe, uh, you know, it, it gives a sense of empowerment or, or responsibility to to lay people to know that by their own baptism they are actually ordained to be able to to perform this in times of need. I'm not suggesting that lay people go out and you know regularly practice this, but where needed, I mean, this is an important aspect of every baptized Christian's ministry that they they know that they have this. Um, capacity, the, 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 the empowerment by God in order to bring people in to the family of God, right? And, uh, you know, I think that, that that's not to be trifled with, right? That's not just, uh, you know, you happen to be there sort of thing. It is truly part of what it means to be made sons and daughters of the Father is that we are in a position to welcome others into that same family relationship. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public half of the overall project of enacting the kingdom. Father Jeffrey and I actively post new episodes on our completely separate private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate and discuss open and sometimes controversial questions regarding the Orthodox faith amongst a smaller and more dedicated audience. If you become a patron now, you'll get immediate access to our growing backlog of private episodes, including a discussion on the ordination of women and the coronavirus multiple spoon controversy. To get access to our private podcast, go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. Looking forward to having you join our growing community on Patreon. Now back to the show. Well, let's move on to the next one. It feels kind of a little bit of like a rapid fire episode today. I'll be like, what about mm-hmm. this? What about this? <laughs> so this one by far has the longest name. 
so bear with me. The office of receiving into the Orthodox Church such persons who have not previously been Orthodox, but from infancy have been reared in heresy, yet received valid baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, while rejecting the rest of the holy mysteries and church customs, and holding other opinions contrary to the Orthodox Church. That's a long, uh, long title. Mm-hmm. So this seems to be a service, you know, meant for those who were uh, baptized into um, into a church through a Trinitarian formula, um, but have not been Orthodox before, um, but then coming to the church. Which, I mean, that would be many people that are coming, especially in North America, who maybe grew up in... Uh, you know, in a, let's say a Protestant church, right? And then coming to the Orthodox church, perhaps this is the service that would be done for them. Yeah. So what we're seeing here um, is rather interesting, right? It's um, the the book of needs that you're kind of working from here is the work of um, the the church in, in Russia, basically in the 16th, 17th century. Um, and so already dealing with, you know, Protestants, Catholics, um, but it's an application of principles that go back right, right to the early church and to the ecumenical councils, right? And so as early as the second ec- ecumenical council um, in 381 in Constantinople, uh, we have a canon which deals with how Arians and other early heretics are to be received back into the church. Because this was a thing that happened, right? I mean, it could very well be that the town you're going to, the church there, uh, the bishop there had gone off into heresy. And, you know, for whatever reason, the, you know, the parish kind of followed suit. And then when the ecumenical council takes place, the church returns to the Orthodox church, suddenly you're dealing with, okay, how do we bring these people back, right? How, how do I return into the the fullness uh, of the church and so forth? So uh, very early on, and, and, and certainly at the level of ecumenical councils, this became a question, how do you receive, you know, people back? And from that earliest times, uh, and this is something that gets reiterated later after the fifth and sixth ecumenical councils, when at the so-called Quinisext Council or Pentecti, uh, where they realized after the fifth and sixth councils, they hadn't actually issued any canons. They got back together uh, in Constantinople, um, in Trullo. It's also called the Council in Trullo, under the dome. Um, and they issued a whole bunch of canons that relate to the fifth and sixth councils. And the canon 95 there is the one that kind of has the sort of most articulated form of this. But essentially, it comes down to this. There are categories of separated um, Christians and others um, that can be reconciled to the church in one of three different ways, right? And so you divide them broadly up. And they, they listed them specifically by the heresy that they were and how they were to be received, you know, back in. And so some of them were so close to orthodoxy to the orthodox catholic church that their their restoration to the church was simply a matter of confessing the faith in other words saying the creed and you know going to confession and coming back and receiving communion so under that sort of rubric included you know nestorians for example, the you know the Assyrian Church of the East, for example, that had followed Nestorius. So, so that was not deemed to be a heresy so serious that it separated 
you or undermined your baptism or your chrismation, you could simply come back through communion. Similarly, um, the separated Oriental Orthodox Christians, so Copts, Armenians, and so forth, who hadn't accepted the Council of Chal- Chalcedon, uh, you know, they were sometimes called Monophysites, more likely Myophysites, you know, the, um, but in other words, they were close enough that they would be received back by communion. Others would be received by chrismation. So it wouldn't be a rebaptism, but they would be chrismated. Now, this isn't necessarily the chrismation that, that, completes baptism, right? There was a chrismation of reconciliation, which you could repeat. So baptism is unrepeatable, right? Baptism is once for all. That's always been very clear. And there's canons from the very earliest church about do not rebaptize. Uh, you're to be defrocked if you ever rebaptize somebody. That's a very serious question indeed. But chrismation was considered repeatable insofar as you could have a reconciliation. So you could have been baptized, chrismated, received communion in the Orthodox Church, but some kind of heresy had come along, or you'd separated yourself, you know, uh, into schism, or you'd simply strayed off the path and were returning later. You would often be reconciled through chrismation. There's a whole category of those. And then thirdly, there would be those who are so seriously uh, undermining uh, Orthodox Catholic teaching and faith that they needed to be baptized on coming into the church. And these were ones who were not considered to have had baptism at all in the first place, right? And we could go into the ins and outs of each of the levels of heresy. But notice at this time, when these canons are being instituted, Father Uri, there are no Lutherans, Calvinists, Catholic, Roman Catholics in the sense of having been separated, uh, you know, in the 11th century. This is all well well before that. So all we can do post 11th century is by analogy, say, okay, what category would we put people into? Now, what's really interesting is that even Arians who were not fully Trinitarian, right? They, they believe that the son was created very, very soon after, you know, but, you know, by the father, but there was a moment in time where there was no son, right? So they were not properly Trinitarian in an Orthodox Catholic sense, they were received into the church had if they were baptized, presumably they were, but they were received by chrismation, interestingly. And there's others like them, the cortodecimans, you know, the ones who were broken, um, you know, communion over the date of Pascha, or there's the Macedonians who denied the full divinity of the Holy Spirit and, and that sort of thing. It was only once you got to, you know, groups like, um, you know, the ones like the Polyanus who said that uh, God is one and Jesus is just a, a kind of adopted human being, right? So that, that was so far from Trinitarian faith. They were considered, if they, even if they'd been received baptism in their own tradition, they were baptized you know, into orthodoxy. So as I say, we could go on with details on details of all these different heresies. So let's go to the 16th, 17th century, the prayers that you're looking at in the Great Book of Needs. Now we're dealing with the likes of Lutherans or, you know, uh, Presbyterians or whoever else who have, as you say, a kind of Trinitarian Christian faith. They, they're derived, you know, in a kind of, in the protest that Protestantism is from the Latin Catholic tradition and so forth. They, they, they actually accept, you know, the teaching of all the early councils and so forth. They have the same scriptures and so forth. So the, the church, 
in her wisdom and pastoral application says, okay, which of these, you know, uh, forms is it, you know, received by communion, received by chrismation, received by baptism, should we apply here? And by and large, the, the response in that time is that because Lutherans, Calvinists, and others don't have apostolic succession, in other words, the, the, that unbroken line of bishops in terms of uh, tactile succession, the, the laying on of hands, as well as the, the full tradition of the, the faith, the apostolic doctrine being passed down, chrismation is necessary, right? Because chrismation is that part which involves the bishop's laying on of hands and the blessing of that holy oil and so forth. It's the it's that kind of continuation of the apostles laying on hands on the newly baptized, right? Which we see in the book of Acts. So that those who don't have apostolic succession need chrismation. Those who do have apostolic succession in Western confessions, like Latin Catholics, the Roman Catholics, they can be received by communion. So it's by analogy to Nestorians, for example, or Oriental Orthodox and, and so forth. So it's a really interesting, you know, kind of dynamic that you get in, in church history there. There's nothing to go on. The church fathers from those councils did not talk about these specific groups. So we can only go by analogy. Now, the complicating factor in Orthodoxy is that in the 18th century, so kind of couple centuries now after the Protestant Reformation, there's a whole breakdown of this. And it happens because of a kind of hardening under modernity of, you know, kind of doctrine and lines of division between different confessions and so forth. So in the middle of the 18th century, there's this kind of falling out between Greek Orthodox and Latin Catholics to the point where in the middle of the, the 18th century, it's insisted upon that Latin Catholics be baptized again, right? And so that's where you kind of have broadly these two approaches that have these names that are a little bit misleading, uh, the Russian approach and the Greek approach. The Greek approach dating from the middle of the 18th century, this harder line and saying, no, no, we have to be really, really black and white about this. Uh, they're not Orthodox, therefore they have no baptism, they must be baptized. And this Greek practice continues today, but often amongst, you know, kind of more traditionalist Russians, you know, whereas most Greeks do not follow Greek practice, they follow, you know, a kind of more Russian practice in this, although it's, it has to be said, the, the, the broader Russian tradition continues to follow that more pastoral Russian approach uh, that dated to around the 16th, 17th century, response to the Western confessions arising and so forth at that point, but by analogy to the early church, right? So if you go back to the ecumenical councils, they have these three different categories and that's where it all gets, you know, really, um, you know, kind of tricky because, you know, today the argument goes, well, do we even know what sort of Trinitarian faith some of these people have? And a lot of people in pastoral practice will tend to err simply on the side of caution and, and just assume, you know, they need, everybody needs to be baptized, right? But um, it, that's not in keeping with, this kind of careful pastoral, uh, you know, consideration that the early church and the ecumenical councils used. So, I mean, you covered a couple of the different services that are here. I thought I'd just read the titles anyways. Uh, things like the Office of Receiving Those Coming to the Orthodox Church from the Armenian Confession, also used for those coming from other non-Chalcedonian, Coptic, Jacobite, Ethiopian, Indian, Nestorian, Roman, Latin, Lutheran, Reformed. 
Um, so like lots of, you know, uh, uh, it applies to lots of people that are coming to the church. Um, and then there's also the office for anointing with chrism, such persons who have come to the Orthodox faith and have united themselves with the Orthodox Catholic church. So that would just be the, the chrismation part. <clears throat> um, oh, sorry, go ahead. You sounded like, I was just going to say, I mean, one of the reasons there's a kind of multiplicity of these in the book of needs is, this is coming at this time of, you know, these long confessions of faith that was, uh, you know, in keeping with what was happening in the, in the Western church at the time you had reformation, you had counter reformation, you had all these arguments backwards and forwards. And in fact, those Western confessions as they emerged and had these long, you know, doctrinal statements and, you know, kind of vehement arguments with, with each other, they were, you know, by turns trying to draw the Eastern churches into, you know, their, their things. The Lutherans would appeal to Orthodox and say, you know, aren't you on our side against the Pope? And then the, the, the Jesuits would go into Eastern Europe and say, you know, surely you, you can't be siding with these Calvinists or Lutherans or, or whatever. And so the, in, part of what you get here in the Book of Needs is not actually in keeping with a, a typically or more fully orthodox understanding of what's going on here. This is mirroring language that has kind of become a, a key part of, of Western tradition by this point, right? So there's an awful lot of questions and answers and disputations and so forth. But the, you have these multiple services because, of course, it could be the people are coming from one or another of these confessions and they get to specifically reject certain parts you know, of, of the, of the, the, you know, their own tradition that they're, they're coming from. Right. So, uh, it's, it's actually a kind of interesting window into 17th century, uh, pastoral situations where people have arrived with one or another heresies that they need to effectively reject. But that, that part is less traditional. You know, that is really a reflection of the, the era in which this is all composed. If you go back to the, the early church, I mean, the focus is entirely on the the creed that comes out and the symbol of faith that comes out of the ecumenical councils, the Nicaea and Constantinople, the first two councils. To be able to confess that is to be orthodox, right? It's not a matter of somehow drumming up a whole long list of rejections and renunciations and doctrinal, you know, elaborations uh, of that. And uh, so there's a slightly you know, misguided character to some of this. I don't know that these services get used in their entirety, you know, quite so much. They really are a reflection of, of the era in which they were composed. But in principle, they do broadly reflect this idea that we can divide those coming into the church into three categories, those that have already been baptized and confirmed or chrismated um, and just need to receive communion, those who have been baptized but not yet chrismated, and those who need baptism. And so, you know, broadly that continues to be the case today in terms of those we receive. We're running a little over time, but I think it's well worth it to go down to that last one, Father Jeffrey, prayers of purification for one returning to the true faith from apostasy. Um, I know that there was a lot of tension in the early church about, you know, could you, let's say, let's say even in a time of persecution, right? Could you, could somebody who abandoned the faith, in order to avoid suffering and persecution, be readmitted into the church if they wanted to. Like this was like an open debate and question uh, in, in the early church. Um, but not like in our situation in 
North America, it's likely that when people leave the church, it's not because of violent persecution. It's because of, I don't know, whatever it is, apathy or whatever it might be. But here we have a, a service that actually receives back those who have departed from the church. Right. And um, so, I mean, the, the eventual answer to the church came up with was yes. Uh, in fact, part of the whole development of the sacrament of confession and the history of that is as a response to a real pastoral need, right? In the very earliest church, it was really doubted whether, you know, after baptism, you had a kind of second chance to, you know, particularly if you've committed some sort of grievous sin. And so that's part of the reason people tended to postpone their baptism, uh, you know, just in case, right? Uh, maybe I haven't done that one big sin um, in, in my life yet, so I better wait until I'm at least a bit more mature and, you know, reach full adulthood and, and so forth. And, and we've talked before about that, you know, waiting in, until maturity to to come in, kind of fully enter the church, right? But, um you know, once the sacrament of confession emerges, that opportunity for what the fathers call a second baptism, right? It's not a, a repeating of a baptism. We, we know that is not allowed. The canons strictly forbid that. But the opportunity to return to one's baptism, to the grace of that baptism, and really an understanding emerges in our teaching, in our, our spiritual life and practice that, in fact, every day ought to be that, right? That we return and we repent and we reorient ourselves and the grace of that death and resurrection in Christ continue to, to bring us closer and closer to the fullness of the, the kingdom that you know, that's what the Christian life really is all about. But what happens when we, you know, kind of veer off? And it happened again and again and again for all kinds of reasons. It could be something as innocent as you belong to a parish and you've always belonged to that parish and that parish became an iconoclast parish or it became a, you know, a, a monophysite parish or it became an Aryan parish for some time. And this, I mean, there were times when most of the church world had fallen into some kind of heresy, right? I mean, the reason we have the whole expression Athanasius contra mundum, St. Athanasius against the world, right? Uh, was because at one point it seemed like he was the only, you know, Orthodox Christian left and everybody else had become an Arian. And this was after the Council of Nicaea had, you know, condemned Arianism. So, uh, you know, what do you do? That's, it's the vast majority of people need to be reconciled. Well, the sacrament of confession plays one role, but then for those who have kind of individually charted a path into apostasy or schism or whatever, it does emerge by the middle Byzantine period, the middle ages and so forth to this idea that chrismation can be repeated, right? And so there was a whole service of reconciliation that involved not only that confession and that reconfession of faith, um, it involved a, a reapplication of holy oil, not as a completion of baptism, the way it was done in the mysteries of illumination, but you know the same oil used to reconcile that person, you know, to the the faith. And I mean, ideally, you don't have to do that again and again, but potentially one could. You know, it's it's a repeatable uh, sacrament the way receiving communion is, the way that going to confession is. And uh, we kind of lost that a little bit. I think a lot of times today when people are being received into the church or back into the church and they, they get baptism or, or, or chrismation, the, the assumption is always this is the, the mysteries of enlightenment, of illumination. Whereas there was this chrismation that was separate from that, that, that 
played this role of, of, of simply reconciling someone to the fullness of the church who had gone away from that, whether it was into some other tradition or some other, you know, heretical or um, heterodox or or schismatic, um, you know, confession or, or church. They needed to be brought back into the fullness of the Orthodox Catholic Church, and that was done by a chrismation that wasn't the same chrismation as the one in baptism. Well, wonderful. I, I think we covered a lot of material today, uh, going through the various different types of situations that people might be coming to the church with in terms of being received into the church. Was there anything else you'd like to add, Father Jeffrey, before we say goodbye for today? No, I think we've probably thoroughly confused our, <laughs> our listeners for today. I mean, it may very well be we need to revisit parts of this you know, a little bit more fully, because I, I do recognize we went over fairly quickly a lot of history, a lot of uh, canons from ecumenical councils and so forth. And they do, these these issues are still a matter of controversy in the church today, because mm -hmm. as you can imagine, when you have these different categories and these options, you know, that some places and some people are going to choose one thing and others another, and that introduces a, another layer of confusion, right? So mm -hmm. it may be that one is received in one form, but goes somewhere else where the practice is different and made you know, for different reasons. And again, there's that kind of doubt that creeps in. And what I really, really want people to be assured of is if you are a full communicating member of the Orthodox Church, you are fully Orthodox. There's no reason to doubt. Um, you know, yeah, don't, that. don't worry about, don't, don't, don't uh, be ruminating on your own baptism or receiving into the church and whether or not that was valid or not. That's right. There is one Christ and one Holy Spirit. And to receive those, to be filled with those is all that matters. And you can point to many examples in church history of people who've been received by all of these different ways. Once you're in, you're receiving communion, you are in the body of Christ and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not doubt. You know, so a lot of the rest is administrative, you know, detail and the matter of somewhat, um, you know, uh, vehement internet controversy at times. But please do not doubt your own full participation in the mystery of, of God. Enacting the Kingdom is a patron-supported show. And if you're not a patron, you're only getting half of everything we create. If you'd like to join our growing community of supporters, please go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. Your patronage goes a long way to keeping this show going. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.